Hi everyone, it's David Silver again, and welcome back to our Health Voyages podcast series. Uh, sitting with me today is co-host Dr. Brian Rostein, the Chief Medical Officer for UH Ventures, uh, no stranger to these podcasts, and we'll start to see Brian consistently as he and I will uh, JV on this podcast series. Brian is a pediatric neurosurgeon here at UH Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. First and foremost, as we enter 22, and you've heard this from me, you've heard this from Brian previously, and it's, uh, we, we're going to restress. We're gonna urge everyone to please, please get your vaccine, get your booster. We need to lighten the burden on our medical staff. And today, actually, we're gonna be speaking to someone who's become, unfortunately, very familiar with this challenge. If you recall, one of our charges when we started this podcast was to demystify as much as we could the notions of innovation, the intersections with healthcare specifically and in general. Today, we wanna to focus on a role that we often see in healthcare, but is often not understood, the chief medical officer. This obviously means different things to different people, different organizations, different systems, different roles, but we'll focus today on what it means to UH, as well as the life of a chief medical officer. And here to guide us in this is Dr. Gil Padula. Gil is the Chief Medical Officer of St. John Medical Center. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, David. So give our listeners a Cliff Notes version on, from your perspective, what the role of the CMO is and anything about the evolution of the role, what it means here at UH and perhaps what it might mean uh, to others and other systems. Sure. So. The chief medical officer role is really just that. You're, you're essentially the top doc of your hospital or medical center, um, representing the interests of the doctors to the health system and to the board and to the rest of the leadership team. Historically, the chief medical officer role was really somebody who dealt with medical staff credentialing and dealt with difficult physicians when they would get in trouble either in the hospital or outside of the hospital. But it's rapidly evolved. Um, we are in an era where we have to do more for our patients um, with less resources and do it better with higher levels of patient satisfaction than ever before. So the chief medical officer has become a more of an operational leader, but at the same time, you have to have financial sense. So you're going to see many um, chief medical officers with an MBA or master's preparation in economics and management because um, these skills which were typically relegated to the hospital president are increasingly being relegated to the chief medical officer. So, you know, doctors have said for a long time, we want a seat at the table. We're the best ones equipped to help run the place. And they've given us that opportunity and we now have to deliver. So um, it's a really an exciting time to have the role. Gil, that's the same across the board. Hospital A, hospital B, hospital C, it's gonna be the same, uh, the same descriptor. Um, you know, it's different. I think different hospitals um, are uh, do it differently. Um, I think most hospitals are now incorporating a lot of things like um, quality management, uh, patient experience, patient satisfaction. Um, at UH, the CMOs tend to be very operational. We're very involved in the effective um, lean operation of a hospital to deliver high levels of employee satisfaction and patient satisfaction. So I think UH is a great place if you want operational finance experience. Um, and some hospitals and smaller health systems still typically employ the older model of the CMO, which is really the vice president of medical affairs 
dealing with credentialing and running the medical staff office. We do that at UH as well, but now there's many, many things that get added on to our plate here, so. So as you can probably infer from the perspective of being a ventures and innovation platform, we receive a ton of solicitation, inbound solicitation from uh, largely early stage companies. Very often, in fact, more often than not, the leadership is clinical. So let me ask you this question. You spent all of these years becoming a physician and specializing. What was that transition point for you to decide that you wanted to go the administrator route? I mean, that's a lot of students to sort of want to repurpose in a different direction. Yeah, no, thank you for asking that question. You know, it's funny. My whole life, I wanted to be a doctor. I never set out to be an administrator. I really thought administrators were kind of in the way. You know, why are they around anyway? Of at least when I was in medical school and residency, what purpose do they serve? It's about doctors, nurses, and patients. Um, and then I went into practice as a radiation oncologist, and I wanted to um, bring about clinical trials to my private practice. And a lot of people were saying, why does he want to do that? You know, how does clinical trial management help a private practice? And so I found I was making my case to my new partners as a junior partner. I was making phone calls to try to develop a research consortium. I was trying to get National Cancer Institute funding to my region to do this, not realizing I could potentially be sabotaging my career by walking on and stepping on everybody's toes. And I realized I was solving problems. I wanted to make things bigger and better for everybody, for doctors and patients. And then I realized I was using leadership skills to try to influence my partners to come on board, to try to influence those around me to come on board and to make something better for patients. And I realized not only do I impact patients when I'm one-on-one -on -one with a patient, but when I make these decisions and initiate these things, um, what we're also doing is making things better for hundreds of patients, not just one patient at a time. Got it. So hope is that we have aspiring physicians, uh, current physicians listening to this podcast and who might be thinking of that potential pivot point in their careers. From your perspective, Gil and Brian, I'm going to ask you the same question. What's the best part of being a, uh, a chief medical officer? Brian, you want to take this first or do you want me to take it? Uh, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll go because certainly my chief medical officer role is very different than chief, your chief medical officer role. But I think that in going back to your answer to the last question, and David, I think this is what makes it so much fun is you're right. You know, being a physician is an incredibly impactful job and it's so humiliating every day, yet it's also fun and rewarding and satisfying and you get to you know, have an impact on and people and, and they're, for me, their children. Um, but it was never enough just to do one patient at a time. Right. And I'm still very early in my career, but I, I love the concept of being able to affect populations, right? Population health in a very different perspective. The work that we do at Ventures is all about how we help our community, both financially, thinking about impact from an investment perspective, but also how do we bring new products, devices, and services right. to the market? So you know, the best part about being CMO is that I get to help the community. And I think that's the easiest way to answer the question. I would agree with that. I think, you know, there's two things that I would say are satisfying to me for other doctors to tell me, thank you for helping me. You made my job a lot easier. Happy, satisfied doctors deliver better patient care. And then when I know a decision I've made has helped not just one patient, but many patients, 
I know I've had, to your point, Brian, a positive impact on the community. So that's really the big reward right there. So those are the uh, those are the parts that you relish, the parts that you uh, you look to to sort of uh, underscore and double down on. They've got to be challenges, right? Tons of challenges. What, in your perspectives, both of you, is the most challenging? I'll let you go first on this one, Gil, because I think you have more challenges, especially in the current uh, situation that we're if we find ourselves in than than I do. Yeah, and I, that, thank you for that, Brian. And I would say the biggest challenge is not knowing what to expect. You know, you haven't checked your email all day. You've been going meeting to meeting to meeting, trying to make things better and more efficient for patients and families and physicians. And you say, gosh, I've got one hour here to answer these emails. And then you get a call. The ER is backlogged. Um, you know, um, we're, we're needing some help with throughput. Um, you know, a, a hospitalist called in. So the unexpected, when you think you own your time, you really don't own your time. And, and, and I think that's always the biggest challenge learning how to take a breath and saying, okay, I've got 200 emails here, but this is more important that ER is filling up and I have to reprioritize because doctors are kind of used to getting their own way. So when I have four to five to check my email, I want to be able to check my email. And it's learning how to deal with that element of surprise that you, if you're helping to run a medical center, you have to be comfortable with not having full control over your schedule. That's a, I think that's a great answer. And I would say that I, I agree. I think the unpredictability also is part yeah. of what makes it fun. Um, I think the other part that's really challenging in the world that we're living in today is trying to find ways to effectively lead, especially in healthcare. Uh, you know, we're dealing with a, a workforce that is overworked, overburdened, um, and and we've not had a chance to give them reprieve, and we keep asking them to do more and my space is a microcosm of that, thinking about how we work in the ventures area in terms of can people come into the office or can't they come into the office? And those are those are simple questions compared to right. the, the questions of how do I offload 50 you know, borders in the ED? Um, but I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to you know the ability to, as you said, Gil, is adapt, right? And the, to deliver. And it, again, we treat it like we're taking care of patients still, we're just doing it in a little different environment. And so I think that ability to kind of think on your feet and, and really make you know, executive decisions and changes that are for the best interest of your colleagues, of the patients, of the people that you work in, in the venture suite with, um, I think that, that kind of mentality takes over and certainly makes some of those challenges easier to deal with. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think this job um, is, is paramount in, in, in training you in the world of resilience. If you can do this job and do it well, you will be a very resilient leader and you'll become very comfortable with uncertainty. So to your point, I, I would agree. Great answers, Jan. So Gil, you, um, you trained and practiced as a specialized radiation oncologist. You transitioned to being the CMO of a, of a general hospital. Um, what was that transition like? Because it wasn't as if you were moving to an immediate adjacency. You, you, were, you were pivoting pretty hard. Tell us about that transition. Yeah, you know, it's funny. A lot of my radiation oncology colleagues around the country will say, why are you CMO? What does that have to do with radiation therapy for cancer? Why did you pick that job? Do you not like oncology? Um, did you want to get out of clinical practice? And I still practice two days a week. I love oncology. It's in my blood. It will always be in my blood. But one thing we've done in oncology that I think we were really kind of first to the party at is through the oncology care model, which is what we call a bundled payment system for taking care of cancer patients and in the whole radiation world, shrinking our treatment. So the whole theme has been 
doing better care over a shorter period of time with higher quality and better patient satisfaction. And guess what? That's really the primary mission of virtually any CMO in the country. So what we were doing in oncology in the last 10 years was perfect breeding ground to prepare for a role with CMO. And what I really love about it, while my heart is in oncology, um, we're applying a lot of these thought processes to things like congestive heart failure, to COPD, to uh, an MI admission, a myocardial infarction admission rule out. And it's the same concepts. How do I rally my team? How do I develop better care for my patient? Have them leave the hospital more satisfied than we had anticipated? And how do I deliver on the whole value proposition? So um, and it's also brought me back to my roots in medicine. You know, I went to medical school because I theoretically like CHF and COPD, and it made me realize I was once a general doctor, right? So um, it, it, it's been very good preparation. I hope that answers your question. I have to commend Gil because I never liked CHF or COPD. That's why. Okay. I'm- All right. Fair enough. But All right. Teach their own. Teach <laughs> their own. That's right. That's why we're technical guys, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I was going to sort of uh, double click on the notion of, of, you know, your clinical practice, the same for, for you, Brian. And, and, you know, it strikes me that the fact that you both have created a balance between the two, um, you know, is this is an assumption, not a statement. And I'll pose it as a question. Does the fact that you keep a foot in both camps make you a better administrator and a better clinician, or am I just joining dots that don't exist? Gil? Brian, you want to take this one first? Sure. I, I I would say undoubtedly yes. I don't think that you can be a connected administrator, no matter what your role is, president of the hospital, CMO, director right. of whatever you're director of, without maintaining a foot in the clinical landscape. especially in the ventures world, right? I mean, we're trying to impact providers and patients with innovations, new technologies, new service lines. If you don't know what's going on and you don't have your finger on the pulse of the the clinical environment that you work in, I think it makes you obsolete. And I think that it's really hard to be able to do it effectively without having some connection. Now, I don't think that you need to, you know, be 90%, 90%, but I think that having that connection to patients having that access to the patient persona and perspective really informs the way that we do the work that we do. And I think that that is, again, across the board, no matter where you sit as a physician administrator or a nurse administrator for that, right? If you're a clinician who's in a leadership role, your access to patients, I think, is so important to your ability to lead effectively. I agree with that entirely. And I think it gives you credibility with the people that you're trying to lead when you get on the computer and off scripts isn't working and you have to reboot your computer three times and you're cursing like the people you're trying to lead, it gives you credibility and they know you're human and they know you get what they're going through. So when they tell you, hey, I can't you know, get patients boarded in the operating room in the right amount of time because I can never get the ER, EMR to work. When you couldn't get it to work either, you understand and you have empathy for what they're going through. But if you're not practicing medicine, I think it's, it's a twofold disadvantage. You forget why you went to medical school, what the purpose is, is to take care of the patients. And then um, you really kind of lose credibility as, as a leader, right? So you have, to have, you have to have one foot in both camps, I believe. And I'll throw out, I think there's a caveat too, right? I think that over time, especially as you grow as a leader, and certainly there's plenty of great examples, um, that I think eventually when, when duty is called, right, you can make that transition to, you okay. know, and I, but, I, but I think it all goes back to, Gil, your statement around credibility, 
I think that okay. it takes time to develop that kind of relationship with your team and, yeah. and leaders that you work with. And once they realize that you are a clinician at heart and that you have the best interest of the patients in mind with the decisions that you're making and the providers for that matter, I think it is a lot easier to see how our leaders, for example, Dr. McGarian has made that transition over time from being you know, an ENT surgeon to you know, running a department to running the physician group to now leading our organization, right? He's always maintained a clinical practice. And I think that that, to your point, it lends credibility, it, it keeps him engaged and, and keeps him, you know, active as a member of the physician and patient community. I, I agree entirely. Yep. So Jess, let me ask you both the same question for the clinicians listening, the physicians who are dialed in the secret sauce to being successful in this role. What advice would you have for emerging physician leaders, clinicians who might be looking to transition into the types of, of designations that you have? Um, Gil, maybe I'll start with you. I would give two, piece of, two pieces of advice. First thing I'd say is, and I hear this from a lot of young leaders, well, this is a problem, you fix it. A leader takes initiative and they solve the problem. But a lot of young physicians are worried about trying to fix the problem because they don't want to get into trouble. I don't think there's going to be a CMO anywhere that's going to get a young emerging physician leader into trouble for attempting to fix a problem and simply making a mistake along the way. So my advice would be get involved. When you see a problem and it impacts your colleagues and it impacts patients, come up with the best resolution possible. Talk to people around you, talk to the nurses, talk to the doctors, talk to patients. What is the solution here? And come up with a solution, get everybody together. And um, that's how you're demonstrating your leadership skills and getting yourself ready for the next role. Um, and I think that is probably the best thing you can do. Don't be shy. I mean, don't do anything immoral, illegal, or unethical, but don't be shy about fixing problems because your physician leaders, your executives around you will notice Sometimes you feel like they're not going to notice, like I did all this work. Does the COO know? Does the CMO know? We know, we're watching, and we're commending you along the way. So my message is get involved and, and be a doer and, and, and roll up your sleeves and fix the problems. I think, I think it's great advice. I don't have a lot to add to that one other than I always heart back to some advice that I got to uh, when I was a medical student. Before medical school even started, white coat ceremony. Um, there's a very famous uh, Dr. Haney uh, who uh, teaches it, um, doesn't, he's an emeritus teacher now at um, a professor at uh, Case, um, actually a, a cardiologist by training. Um, and, you know, he has his Haney's rules of engagement. And the number one rule is to know what you don't know. And I yeah. think that um, in medicine, that is the most important thing to be humble and recognize that you're not going to have an answer to every question. You're not going to know every diagnosis the first time you look at or see a patient. You're not going to do things right the first time. And sometimes you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. But as long as you put yourself out there, like Gil said, and are willing to do the work and to volunteer and to lend a voice, that's a voice of reason and a voice of creativity and inspiration. Um, I agree. People will notice. Yeah. Um, and listen, it's not easy. You, you got to put the time in. No one's going to give you the title without having spent a little time, you know, doing a little elbow grease in the background you know, polishing some cars and, and, and whatever else it might be. But uh, I say that tongue in cheek. But um, yeah, I think that as long as you're humble and, and, you, and you try to do the things in a way that are impactful to people, uh, then people will notice and, and you'll get your opportunity. Yep, great. 
Yeah, let's tie this back to, to innovation for a second. This is the, the healthy, um, this podcast series, of course, um, is largely focused on of, of innovation from the perspective of, of its intersection with healthcare, with life sciences. Your current role as CMO, your view on innovation. From your perspective, what opportunities for innovation are you finding yourself focusing on? And how would those differ if they do from your perspective of, uh, of, of being a physician? I, I think, you know, that's a great question and thank you for that. I think one thing I've seen as an opportunity for innovation is really how we deliver care. When I knew I wanted to be a doctor and went to medical school, I knew regardless of what I would do, I would be in an office and I would see patients one by one. And if I was a proceduralist, I would book procedure time to deliver radiation, to do surgery one-on-one. -on -one. And then I think the pandemic has taught us that that doesn't necessarily need to be the model. We need to look at ways that suit our patients. Do you wanna come in for a live visit? Um, do you want to be seen virtually? And if you need to come in for an exam, we'll do that. Um, do you want a touch point on the telephone or do you want me to text you? I think we need to start to think about innovative ways of delivering healthcare on our patients' terms and not necessarily on our terms. Our terms are eight to 4.30 in my office when I'm done, I go home, I have dinner, and I watch ESPN or CNN or whatever. Um, I think we need to come up with ways that really deliver patient care on the terms of the family and the patient. And so that creates opportunities in telehealth, technology delivery, um, secure text messaging, many different ways. There's, I think in five to 10 years, there's gonna be many different ways to see your doctor. Going to the office will be one of them, but there'll be another whole slew of additional ways. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, fabulous, Brian, anything to, to add? Uh, yeah, <coughs> one I would add to that is, you know, our responsibility to our community, um, specifically from an access to healthcare perspective. You know, we've always talked about the disparities in healthcare and the inequities that exist in, in patients' ability to get to a doctor, whether it be financial reasons, transportation, whatever it is. I think that we're now living in a world, and we've proven through our response to COVID how we can bring healthcare to our patients, and just as you pointed out, Gail, from telemedicine, virtual health, and things like that, I think that we are going to need to continue to push the envelope and find more ways to break down the barriers that exist so that no matter who you are, where you grew up with, how much money you have or don't have, what access you have, insurance, no insurance, whatever it is, we have some really smart people who are working in the healthcare technology world who are going to help us break down those barriers to really create a level playing field for the first time ever in healthcare. And I think that not only will that benefit us as clinicians, because we'll be improving the health of our patients, it will benefit our communities because once you have your health, it makes it so much easier to do other things. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah, yeah, Brian. Gil, we always uh, close by asking our podcast uh, guests the same question. Um, any books you're currently reading that you'd like to recommend? Any podcasts that you might be listening to? I am reading a book called The Princes of the Renaissance. It's about the Medici family in Italy and how they fostered um, the whole growth of the Renaissance and the arts and sciences in Italy that kind of reverberates to this day. And what I think is striking, I'm trying to think about my legacy and what I want as a physician leader to be here, you know, 10 years, 20 years after I retire. What's my mark on St. John and how do we hardwire certain things here. And if you think about the Medici, they had their glory, 
but then they kind of got diminished as a family, but their legacy lives on today, banking and the arts and sciences. So what I'm trying to learn about is legacy. I think I think having mastered it is too strong of a word, but I think I'm getting comfortable with being a physician leader. Now I want to learn about how to live and, and, and deliver a lasting legacy. So that's why I'm reading that book. Great, uh, great response. And um, this has been fabulous. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have as well. Um, we could do this for another two hours. And actually on that topic, perhaps there is a way to follow up on some of these threads and themes, and perhaps even begin to engage with some of your peers at, at other institutions in order to, to help us all from a learning perspective. Thank you all for listening to the Health Voyages podcast series. Uh, as always, be sure to follow University Hospitals Ventures on LinkedIn uh, to follow our latest news, our events, our upcoming podcasts. Everyone stay safe and uh, we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.